Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey Mets fans, welcome back to Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World Series. My name is Brian, with me as always is Chris. And uh, Chris, it's been a few weeks since we've been recording, and uh, the Mets have done some stuff. Uh, last we spoke, they had hired a new manager, which you know we covered in detail. Um, but since then, they have non-tendered a bunch of players, they've rounded out their coaching staff, they've signed some players, they've claimed some players. Uh, before we get into the specifics, I- I'm I'm curious. My I was I was chatting with my father-in-law the other day, and he had said that he expected this new Stearns administration to make a big splash early to sort of uh, call their shot, as it were. You know, the, the, the old, like, your first day in prison, you beat up the biggest guy there move just to, like, show people you mean business. Um, whereas I kind of felt that Stearns is going to be a more methodical, you know, um, just rebuilding the team in, his, in a way that didn't really have to answer to the press or have to make a splash. So sort of how did you expect this offseason to start before we talk about how it's actually going? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I don't know if I expected it to go this way, but I was trying to be optimistic in my mind, thinking a little more uh, like your father-in-law's approach to it, that the Mets would just say, Hey, we're, we're going to set the tone. Um, and we're going to go out there and, and get the guys that we really want to get and and then fill things out from there. Um, obviously, they have taken the complete opposite approach to that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we'll get into some of the individual players, but um, not necessarily that they had to get out and, and sign the biggest names on the free agent market uh, on, you know, day one. But... I was, and I guess I still am hoping as, as we are recording just before the winter meetings start that they will go out and get guys rather than wait to see who's left uh, in, in the free agent pool. And obviously they can make trades as well, but I think we were just so used to the Wilpon era where the entire offseason was waiting for everybody else to sign everywhere and then still wondering if they would sign anybody. Um, so I don't know that what I wanted them to do in terms of the approach really mattered. And, and, and I don't know if it's necessarily better or worse, uh, but I, I do see with the starting pitching market, a little bit of the kind of stuff that I, I didn't want to see that there's, Good pitchers, some not so good, but there are some good pitchers signing elsewhere. Um, there are only so many of them out there. There are 30 teams, and each one you cross off the list makes it just a little bit less likely that you're going to go out and and get the good guys. Right. Um, that's all. So 
look, if they wanted to sign, uh, start the offseason by signing Otani and Yamamoto and announcing it all by the time we recorded this today, sure, that would have been great. That would have felt pretty amazing. But um, I just hope that they intend to be slightly more aggressive than less, uh, you know, from here. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about with this is just how the timing of everything matters so much. And I, that's a very uh, ridiculous statement to make. Of course, timing matters, Salvatore. But the um, the idea of, you know, if these were the last five moves made by the Mets, and we'll talk about those moves in a minute. If these were the moves made in the f- week before spring training, I think everybody would have a very different tone. This would be, oh, look, they're filling out the back of their rotation. They got a utility player for the bench. They made some waiver claims on some flyers, and we'll see what happens with these players. I think that's a that's if this happens at the end of February, everyone's or middle of February, whatever it is, everyone's okay with it. The fact that this is how the Mets started their offseason, I think, is what has people worried. I think most fans that have, you know, a certain um level of intelligence or of at least calm to them can see that it can say you know these are these are moves that are you know working around the fringes and those moves are important and you know anyone who saw you know any Mets game from like 2011 to 2015 can tell you that uh, 2014 rather can tell you that uh you know depth is important in the bullpen and in the starting rotation because we watched a lot of terrible pitching performances during those years because the Mets would never sign enough depth and so seeing the Mets make all these little fringy moves I think that's that's important and good however it doesn't you know we we all still have willpon PTSD if we as we mentioned in the show a million times and so when you see a fifth starter signed for $13 million, we start to think, well, this is, if this was the Will Bonds, this would have been their big signing. But I think we have to we have to just pump the brakes on this and say, look, this is one signing that doesn't necessarily preclude anything. They would have to sign a fifth starter, even if they went out there and they signed Yamamoto and, you know, Snell or whoever else they want to go after. Even if they sign those guys, they probably still need to sign three starters. So this is this is fine. Um, if we get to the middle of January and this is still their moves, I think then we can all be panicking. But for now, uh, we need to uh, you know, just pump the brakes a, a little bit here. Um, but before we talk about who was signed by the Mets, let's talk about who was not retained by the Mets. So the Mets, uh, at the non-tender deadline, they non-tendered Luis Guillorme, Daniel Vogelbach, Jeff Brigham, Sam Coonrod, and Trevor Gott. Um, I think all of us have positive thoughts about Guillorme. I know I still have positive thoughts about Vogelbach, even though his 2023 performance, you know, limited those positive thoughts a little bit. And in terms of the relief pitchers, I, you know, I, I am very reluctant to write off or anoint a relief pitcher based on one season performance, especially guys that are young, like Coonrod or Gott. Um, ultimately, I don't really have a problem with any of this. I, the Guillaume thing will come back later in the show, but w- what do you think of, of these five non-tenders? Well, mostly okay with them, except for Guillaume, but <laughs> we can we can either talk about him now or later. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I think I think in a few minutes makes sense since he's sort of been replaced by a very specific player they added. Yes. Um, 
I, you know, would, I wrote a little bit about it just coming into the non-Tendo deadline, thinking, okay, who, who's likely to go? Uh, what should they do? What shouldn't they do? And there is an advantageous sort of situation with Steve Cohen's money that, one, it doesn't even cost the team that much to tender a guy and then cut him uh, when you get to spring training up to a certain point. But two, whatever that does cost really is nothing to Mets ownership. That being said, um, I, I get that you kind of want to wipe the slate clean, and that definitely seems to be <laughs> the, the. I guess that's how the offseason really got kicked off. You know, there has not been a big mood move yet, but non tendering these guys, I think, was a little bit of a message that Stearns saw this as something that needed a little bit more of a change, a little bit more right. turnover. Right. I, I had mentioned on, I think it was the last podcast we won before, that when Stearns took over the Brewers, he turned over half of the 40-man roster in their first uh, offseason. So yeah. I think this is maybe just what he does. Right. And I, I think that is a possibility here. Certainly if they get into the trade market, um, I think I think they got down as low as 27 players in the 40-man roster before they started making some of these moves. Um Brigham Coonrod got in the non-tender group. I think I don't think we're going to regret any of those decisions as fans. Uh, obviously, it's always possible that one of them could turn into Paul Seawald somewhere. Yep. At, at, le- at least in these cases, it's not somebody who was developed and promoted to the major leagues by the Mets and then traded. Uh, these were all guys that they had brought in from elsewhere. Um, really thought Brigham was going to work out. Me too. Year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you said, relievers are weird. Um, it's entirely possible that he'll he'll work out wherever he goes next, or who knows? Maybe he won't get a major league deal and he'll he'll come back on a minor league deal with the Mets. Um, or he'll wind Met. up he'll wind up dominating the KBO or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's certainly a possibility. Um, former Met Thomas Zapucky was non tendered by the Giants. And has already re-signed with them on a minor league deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of pitchers who, although maybe to varying degrees, have had some success after being traded away, right? Or like go by the Mets. Um, and yeah, Volgoback. I don't know. I I I think there's a weird thing where people downplay sort of the impact he had in 2022. Yes. He was very good for the Mets when he came over. Right, especially immediately after the trade. And, like, I don't know. I I guess Colin Holderman doesn't do all that much for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just because, at least in theory, the Mets should be able to get that kind of production from a reliever, you know, in free agency every year. Right. Um, But Vogelback, don't get me wrong, this year was not a successful year for him. But I feel like people kind of forget that there was a reason that we all started to love him last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that being said, I, I understand the decision. Um, it, yeah, it, it sets things up that either the DH role is going to be somebody who is in it all the time and a much more powerful or consistently powerful hitter than Vogelback. Or 
they go the the route of rotating it and keeping everybody uh, a little younger, more athletic, what you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, right. Yeah, Vogelbach's a bit of a one-trick pony <clears throat> uh, in terms of his abilities, but I also think he's a player that uh, every like <laughs> how do I put this. When he's playing against your team, you look at his stats and you say, man, we could use a guy like Daniel Vogelbach. But when he's playing for your team and you see how those stats are accumulated, it's suddenly a less uh, enjoyable proposition. He's just not a player that when you watch him every day, you marvel at his production. He's kind of like Mark Canna in that way, actually. I feel like Canna... When you watched him every day, he rarely had those games where he just seemed like the best hitter on the team. He would he'd have a single here, a double here, occasionally hit a home run, but he always sort of just he very much looked like what an average ball player looks like. But when you step back a little bit, you realize that an average ball player has a lot of value. It's just not super exciting to watch that play out day to day every time and I kind of felt like Vogelbach was similar in that way where you know here's a guy he has power he walks a lot he strikes out a lot he does not hit a lot of uh you know doubles triples even singles he's kind of a an all-or-nothing type player and when you're just looking for like as a fan I had Vogelbach on my fantasy team for a couple of years you know as a as a fantasy owner that's a very valuable player but not the most exciting day-to-day player to watch. And I think that that part of his game exhausted people way more this year. And plus, like you said, this year was a down year for him also. Um, but, you know, I I will miss Vogelback, but I can't fault Stearns for wanting to try something different at the H roll. Um, all right, let's let's quickly move past Luis Guillermo. We're going to get back to him in just a minute here. But uh, since we last spoke, the Mets also hired a bench coach and a third base coach john gibbons former two-time manager of the toronto blue jays will be mendoza's uh bench coach which is uh, a pretty traditional move oftentimes a younger first-time manager will have a more experienced bench coach see willie randolph and um sandy alomar senior i believe he was the bench coach wasn't he wasn't he he was definitely on the staff yeah he he had that role i I think <laughs> as I was saying, and I'm like, this all of a sudden isn't sounding right to me, but I, I believe, I believe that that was the case. Um, but yeah. And uh, Mike Sauer, uh, Sarba, I believe is how it's pronounced. Sarba is the new third base coach. I don't really know Sarba at all. He spent 11 years on uh, the Indians uh, coaching staff. So, um, you know, again, another experienced coach to bring in for uh, the Mets new manager. Any, any big takes on these? Nothing too crazy other than noting and not having listened to it all that much myself other than a, a clip of one episode. Uh, but Gibbons has a podcast or I, I guess maybe had a podcast since he probably won't continue doing it while he's actively working on a major league <laughs> staff. Um, I'm just picturing him doing ads for like um, like Dollar Shave Club and a Manscaped from the dugout, you know. Oh yeah, yeah no that that'd be great, but <laughs> but I don't know there aren't that many people involved in the Mets uh, as as a major league entity that have done that sort of thing. So in between the gigs he's had, he he had this show. Uh, 
I don't know. It might be an interesting sort of way to look into how he operates. Whether or not any of us need to be that committed to the bench coach of the Mets, I, I don't know. But <laughs> there have been some pretty cool guests on there. Uh, like oh, really? Delgado. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, th- there might be some decent stuff to dig into. Um, then, uh, yeah. I feel like it's if you want to get more familiar with a role that always feels like it's pretty much secret, except if they manage a game when the manager gets ejected or has an illness or, or something like that. Or, the, um, or their daughter's college graduation, which I feel like every manager has missed major league game for their kid's college graduation at some point in my uh, fandom. Yeah, yeah. So uh, any of those things. But if you want it, there's, there's a lot of John Gibbons content out there. I don't really recall anything about him as the manager of the Blue Jays, uh, even though he was at the helm when they went to the playoffs a couple of times in relatively recent years. And I remember those teams. Like, I think he was the manager when Jose Bautista had the big bat flip, right? I believe he was, yes. So, yeah, but I remember Jose Bautista. I don't remember. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. I don't really remember too much about sort of what the Blue Jays felt like as a, as a team or, or certainly what their manager um, was saying or doing. But, yeah, I, I think you hear a lot that, okay, first-time major league manager gets a bench coach who has experience being one. Um, sure, why not? Doesn't doesn't sound like bad conventional wisdom. So, yeah. Yeah, give it a shot. And, uh, and yeah, I, I believe the third base coach pronunciation is correct. I, I'm like Jim Harbaugh with an S is basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. That what I'm looking at there. And then they hired somebody as a first base coach shortly after that too, and I can't remember who it was, but – um yeah all of these positions i mean i know that they matter i'm not going to say that they don't matter but ultimately especially with the way that baseball is currently constructed in terms of how a front office has much more input on the day-to-day of the of the team i think the way that these positions matter will almost never be clear to fans unless it's a third base coach making a bad send or something like that but like i don't know if we'll ever be like oh you know what really fucked up the mets this year was uh, john gibbons bench coaching like you know there's just just, just no way to really be aware of that um you know i i I suppose i know that coaches make players lives easier and so i I think you maybe you'll hear somebody say you know oh i i loved playing for john gibbons when he was a manager because he was xyz and maybe that will trickle down to his bench coach duties but ultimately i don't think that these things uh these things matter that much sorry people out there who are really hoping for a hot take on the mets third base coach well let's get into the signings now the mets signed luis severino to a one-year deal to bolster the back end of the rotation 13 million dollars i believe he has an additional two million dollars in incentives along with that deal and uh, you know the only players the Mets have really signed up as locked-in starters for the season before they signed Severino were Kodai Senga and Jose Quintana, both solid major league arms. Don't get me wrong, but clearly there's work to be done here. And as we stated in the opening, I just think that Severino is – and look, I am not a Severino hater. I don't think he's great. He had a couple of really good seasons, but he has not done much since then. 
I don't. I think Severino is one of the least sexy signings the Mets could have made as their first splash in the 2023 offseason. And so I understand why people maybe are not uh, super duper excited about this move. But as far as a fifth starter goes, I'm not specifically worried about this. Uh, do you have stronger feelings about this than I do? Maybe slightly. Uh, obviously, there's uh, a pretty good track record going back to the 2017 and 18 were very, very good seasons for him. Um, good ERA, good peripheral stats, threw almost 200 innings in each of those two years. And as we know, throwing 200 innings is exceptionally uh, rare these days. Yes. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that it was sort of the expectation that your starters might get to that point, but uh, I forget how many guys did it this year, but it was not a lot. Uh, so those were excellent years, but then through a combination of injuries and struggles, he's only thrown over the last five seasons. And that includes the 2020 season <clears throat> in which he did not pitch, right? Uh, but, but was really short anyway. But still, over the last five seasons, he's thrown a total of 209 and one-third innings. So that's a long time to go with that amount of work at the major league level coming off of back-to-back seasons when you almost hit that innings total in, in one year right? instead of five. So, um, yeah, so... Little bit concerned there. I feel like signing Severino is. I, I do think and hope that the fifth starter role is what they have in mind here for him, uh, with potential for him to turn things around. Um, obviously, he also really struggled this year. Home runs were a major issue uh, in a way that they hadn't been for him ever before. His ERA ballooned, every, all the other peripheral stuff did too, because. Um, there's just there, there's not really a pitching metric in baseball that just says, ah, eh, don't worry about all those home runs. <laughs> but I think signing Severino, looking at what he's been able to do in terms of staying healthy, even if we assume that he writes the ship and he's a three something ERA guy and not a six and a half or higher, I, I do think you're saying, okay, the fifth starter spot is Severino. Miguel Lucchese. It's sort of a you're you have to be planning for that to be a mix in that spot because I just don't think you're going to get 30 starts out of him. I, I right, hope they do. Right. I yeah, I'll take 30 starts with a the three point you know. I'll take two, 30 starts with a four point two ERA. Right. Yeah. Um, so it. I, I think it's only disappointing in the sense that. In the winter, it's nice to dream and say, hey, <laughs> uh, despite being burned by the idea so many times, hey, look, they have five pitchers. They're all healthy right now when nobody's playing baseball. It's going to be great. They're all going to throw you know, 30 to 32 starts, 180 plus innings, and all's going to go smoothly. Uh, I forget what year it was. The, the Mets did have one year where they had really good pitching health. Um yeah, what what year was that? They used like nine, like eight starters that year. I want to say like it was it was some crazy low number. Yeah, everybody was healthy. Yeah, I don't, I, 
you would think it would be the 101 win season in, in 22. It was I'm not 100 sure that it was. No, but. no, it was. It was. Um, oh, I, I, there's no way to Google this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what year were the Mets healthy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to say it was maybe the 2016 season. Hang on. I'm doing a quick a quick look here. I mean, in 2016, Cologne started 34 games. Syndergaard started 31. No, because Jacob DeGrom only did 24. Mads did 22. That's not the season. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're not going to find it right now. It's okay. Um, but yeah, you're, you, uh, I agree with everything. You, like, I, like I said, I, I think Severino, best case scenario, Severino is a perfectly cromulent mid four ERA who makes 22 starts for the Mets. Right. And I guess that we have to be okay with that in the fifth spot. Um, I just hope that the Mets can sign sturdy enough starters above him that. It's he's not all of a sudden our third starter come July, right? Because that's just a, a horrible, horrible thought. Um, the other deal that was announced the same day as the Severino deal was a contract for Joey Wendell, a one-year uh, contract worth two million dollars. Uh, as uh, was pointed out in the your subheadline of this, Wendell had a forty seven WRC plus <laughs> in twenty twenty three. I really enjoyed that. Uh, that 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 made me chuckle. And well, thank you. <laughs> uh, here's here's the thing. There has to be some reason that the Mets looked at Luis Guillorme and Joey Wendell and felt like. One of these guys is not worth a tendering a tendering a contract to, and one of these guys is worth two million dollars. I don't know what they're looking at when they see that, but there has to be something there. But to right. me, this is a baffling, like truly baffling move. Uh, look, it it was not a great year for Luis Guillorme in twenty twenty three. And Luis Guillerme is not a world beater in terms of his uh, offensive production, but Guillerme is a damn good infielder who can cover you in multiple positions, who is not a total disaster with the bat. You know, look, before this past season, uh, he had an OPS plus of 70. Not great. But the four seasons before this, and I granted one of them is 2020, take that one with a grain of salt. 101, 92, 140, 84. The 140 is the 2020 season. So that's, you know, right. wash that one away. But he's hovering close to league average offensively. And so if you have a league average offensive player who is a great defensive player, I think that guy is well worth tendering a contract to, especially when we look at his last contract was for $1.6 million. So you figure. Even if it goes up to $2 million, which is what the Mets paid for Wendell, that seems well within the realm of a player, well within the realm of, of, a, of, a, of a salary for a player that brings to the team what Guillaume brings to the team. He's also five years younger than Joey Wendell. So even taking out of it, like, 
the the epic walk at bat that he had the twenty something pitch walk at bat that was incredible, or him like catching the bat that was thrown that that, that flew out of someone's hand during spring training, or leaving out of it the dozens of beautiful web gems we've seen him uh, snag over the past four seasons. Like, put all that aside. Just look at the raw numbers, and I don't get the move. Add in all those other things, and I truly don't get the move. What say you, Chris? Uh, I'm with you. Uh, if I'm searching for what the Mets see in, in Wendell specifically, I guess the fact that he's had some seasons where he, uh, depending on your preferred metric for this, but on fan graphs, he had a three-win season in 2021, a 3.9 win season in 2018. Uh, those peaks are, even as a Guillaume lover, uh, myself as well, not something that I would expect that he could get to uh, in, in a single season. But Wendell's going into his age 34 season. Uh, it, he was worth negative 0.8 wins above replacement on fan graphs this year. Um I don't know. I don't know if they think they see something from the last two years that he was in Miami where he struggled. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to do this with a pitcher, but it's maybe a little bit easier as a fan to look at a pitcher's uh, sort of stat cast or or, um, pitch effects, uh, going back to how I still think of it, (laughs) even though they rebranded everything. Um, It's, Easier with a pitcher to say, oh, look, in 2021, he started throwing a cutter. And then all of a sudden, he got way better. And you could see a pitch mix, and that pitch was really effective. You you can do some digging and maybe figure it out, right? With Joey Wendell, I I don't know if it's the Rays had him doing something with Rays magic in his time there. Uh, He was with them for both of those seasons I mentioned that, that were his high war seasons relative to the rest of his career and, and to Guillaume. Um, I don't know if they think that the two years he spent in Miami were, it went wrong for some reason that was caused by the Marlins. Uh, Maybe the Marlins didn't deploy him in the right kind of situations. Uh, They, all these teams, I would be pretty sure have like much better splits and, projection systems than we have access to so maybe the marlins just didn't know how to use joey wendell and david stearns knows that or somebody in the mets front office in its current iteration knows that and they see a a way to put him out there and get the most that they can out of him um but i i do think it's a little bit concerning that he's been as bad as he's been for the last two seasons Uh uh-huh and I, I think it's a little bit too convenient for people to just write it off as, oh, this is just an early signing. Like he, He's not necessarily going to make the team. I, I don't know. Two million bucks in a major league contract seems to me like you have an opening day roster spot unless something goes terribly wrong in spring training. I guess my only counter to that last point is that if there was a trade or a signing that made um... – that made sense that happens and all of a sudden Wendell looks like he might be out of a job. 
I don't think two million is enough for the Cohen org to be like, oh no, we got we gotta we gotta tend to this guy. What are we gonna do? I think they just cut him at that point. Yeah, that that's fair. I, if you look at it as insurance, maybe maybe that's the way it plays out. I just think right now, I can't convince myself that he is not <laughs> one of the bench players on opening day. Sure, and I'll root for him. I, when we get to that point. Hey, I hope he's great. I hope he looks great in spring training. Uh, I, I am not in the business of actively rooting against otherwise innocuous players <laughs> who are in a Mets uniform. I, I hope they all do well uh, when, when things shift into the games that count. Um, but, yeah, I just I, – I, I don't see it. And I, I hope to be wrong. My last thought on Wendell was that I saw somebody mention pop off the bench. And I was like, his, his isolated slugging is below 100 <laughs> over the last two years combined. Like, come on. That, if that's, pop off the bench was that important, they wouldn't have non-tendered Vogelback. Right. Yeah. If that, I, I don't know who said it. I, and it just, I went I, like, what? That, that Giorme, uh, this year, and, and obviously we're dealing with small samples with both of these guys. Neither one of them was in a starting role. Guillaume played less than Wendell this year. Uh, but Guillaume had more pop this year than Wendell. So <laughs> just just for reference. Yeah. Uh, and then we're just going to rattle off these quickly. The Mets claimed Cooper Hummel off waivers from the Mariners. Um Hummel was drafted in 2016 by the Brewers, which makes sense because Stearns would have been there for that draft. Um, he's a switch hitter. He is, doesn't have a ton of major league experience. He's played left field catcher and first uh, in the minor leagues. This is, you know, I, I can't get mad at this move. I have no idea who this guy is or what he's capable of. And I think that most people who claim they do probably don't because unless you're a, someone who's really watching the Mariners minor league system, you probably don't know much about Cooper Hummel. But sure, it happens. Uh, they also claim Tyler Heineman off of waivers from the Blue Jays. I wonder if there's any relation to Jeff Heineman, former member of Wilco there. Uh, you're the only person in the world who might get that reference. And he was such an early minor member. I don't even know if you're going to get that reference, Chris. So, no. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, my mind went to Jeff Henneman from uh, Slayer when I saw that, this guy's last name. <laughs> uh, I think I'm getting that name right. Hang on. Let me look. Oh, up. yeah. No, no. You, you very well might be. I, but now now I'm doubting myself, though. Hang on. I got to Wikipedia. I go. <laughs> Members. Um, Brian Henneman. Sorry. Slightly different spelling. Nope. Not no relation. Okay. I have fucked up my own premise here. That's fine. Um, he's a catcher. <laughs> I wasn't trying to call you out. I just had a no, had no, 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 no. I was calling the slayer. <laughs> I was calling myself out. So uh, yeah, thirty-two-year-old um, catcher. This is an insurance move, I guess. Don't they still have Tomas Nito? I don't know. Yep, they do. Um, yep. So this is you know, it's fine. Whatever. This literally means nothing. Who knows? Um, and then they signed uh, Austin Adams to a one-year deal. He was a relief pitcher who pitched for the Diamondbacks last year and shit the bed consistently. Had just had a terrible, terrible year um, for the Diamondbacks. Has thrown as as had better seasons, you know, um, but but not not a, a superstar player. But you know, the Mets need to sign a lot of players for their bullpen. And I this is something where I I trust a front office to have a better sense of a guy's stuff than i do 
for some reason, I'm more willing to, to, like you said before, I'm more willing to let a front office convince me that a relief pitcher is worth the money than a bench player. I don't know why that is. That's just my own weird bias, but I guess it is what it is. And the Mets signed Kyle Crick to a minor league deal yesterday, another uh, relief pitcher. Any hot takes on any of those signings? Not really. I, I think collectively the strategy so far has been by low. Uh, right. Which, hey, the, talked about conventional wisdom in baseball earlier this year. I'd say that's conventional wisdom uh, in a whole lot of different parts of life. Sure, it's a strategy. Um, I'm not sure how much lower they could buy, but they, <laughs> but oh, the, the, you're getting in on on in uh, certainly situations where you're hoping that you're going to get more out of all of these guys than what they did in uh, 2023. In some cases, 2022 and 23. And yeah, I hope like you were talking about earlier that this all Severino won't be a distant memory unless he's hurt, but it, I hope most of these guys are on the fringe you know, back of the bench fighting for a spot. Uh, and in the case of the two catchers, uh, they're, they're not, fighting for anything their their insurance if alvarez narvaez and nito get hurt and even then the mets might still go do something else right um yeah again yeah. i'll root for them all yeah. yeah right right now we're just waiting on the more inspiring moves that's all right yeah and the more inspiring moves should be starting any minute now because we are entering the winter meetings this week in nashville and, uh, you know, this is where a lot of stuff happens. I, Again, we don't know how Stearns is as a GM yet. Or not, not a GM, as a, as a president of baseball operations. But they're not hiring a GM this offseason. So he's essentially the GM as well. We, we don't know his style. We don't know if he makes a big splash in the winter meetings. If you know, I feel like every year Sandy Alderson would always say, we laid good groundwork. That was like his, his end of the winter meetings thing. Because the Mets would inevitably sign one disappointing player. And he'd say, well, we laid a lot of good groundwork for future moves. We had a lot of good meetings, stuff like that. So, you know, we'll see what 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 the vibe is. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Mets do something this week. I don't know if it's Yamamoto yet, but um, I'd be shocked if they came out of the winter meetings with nothing. Do you feel similarly? Yeah, I, I expect something to happen. And as we're getting into wrapping up our recording of this episode of the podcast, it'll probably happen before the winter meetings even start. <laughs> yes, uh, especially because I can't edit this as soon as we're done recording. There's going to be a, 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 couple, a couple of hours, at least, if not a full day between recording and release. So this could very well be very outdated by the time that we uh, we actually release this. But um, but yeah, that's that, that's what it is. Well, I, I am sure there will be some home run applesauce content during the winter meetings, maybe we'll do a quick nightly podcast or something on our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash home applesauce, or uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So uh, anyway, yeah. Before we get to that, though, Chris, what is your pick for the music this week? Are we, I, I'm excited to hear what you're going to be talking about. Yes. Uh, so I had the pleasure of seeing this band live with Jeffrey Lewis, who I had previously seen live with. Ezra Furman. So Jeffrey Lewis had opened for Ezra. And on this particular tour, Jeffrey Lewis was headlining in the Burning Hell is the name of the band that uh, was touring with him. 
and they're from Prince Edward Island in Canada, uh, and they're just excellent. Uh, the The record is called Garbage Island. Um, at the show, they played some stuff off is that, other records. Is that a Simpsons yeah. reference? Oh, man. Is it? Where's this boat heading to? Garbage Island. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but it is, <clears throat> it's a really great record. Um, they, I don't know if I've recommended anything from Jeffrey Lewis on the show before, but save they it, have... Save it. Yeah, life is long. You're gonna need it at some point. Yeah, yeah. But they have something in common for those who might not be familiar. Uh, They both have a way of working a lot of words into their lyrics uh, and and pulling it off. And I, I enjoy it a lot. There's there's a sense of humor and uh, a mix of humor and seriousness, I guess, in in this music. Uh, By no means is it like a comedy record, but it's nice when really good, well executed, catchy music can also make you smile or laugh in, in a little bit of that kind of way. Um, and the standout tracks, I, I like the record start to finish. Um, that, you know, there's one track that, that is, I think very heavily influenced by the talking heads. Um, but my three favorite tracks at the moment are all about birds. Um, Nigel, the gannet is a song about, uh, a bird in New Zealand that was attracted to an island where scientists were hoping to get a breeding colony going, and he was the only one who showed up. And <laughs> they had fake birds out there, and he basically fell in love with one and uh, spent his life tending to and caring for a stone version of his species. Uh, wow. So the song is about that. Uh, eventually, his his efforts were uh, part of a a more successful thing. So it's not as depressing as that might sound, but, um, <laughs> but I love taking something like that and making a song out of it. Like that, that to me connects with how I would try to make a song. So I, I love that song. So Nigel, the Gannett bird watching and bird queen of garbage Island are three really good songs, uh, in different ways about birds or people watching them, obviously. Um, and I, I really just like uh, the whole record start to finish. Um, I challenge anybody to listen to it and not end up in a pretty good mood. So, yeah. Nice. The Burning Hell, Garbage Island. Uh, they don't come to the United States all that often because we make it very expensive for artists to do that. Yes, we do. Um, so if you're not big enough, you might lose money by touring in the United States. Uh, but if you see them pop up or if you happen to be in Canada, um, check them out because they, they're nice people too. So very cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am, I am having some, uh, some winter allergies and they're not awesome. Um, so, uh, I'm going to go to an artist that I, both of us are, are huge fans of, and that is Mike Watt. Um, it was just announced yesterday that Mike Watt would be actually playing bass for the porno for pyros, um, farewell tour next year he briefly played with them in the 90s but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about his new record with petra hayden under the band name pelican man and the album is called planet chernobyl this is a very high concept uh record it is based on a i I don't know if you'd call it like an he calls it a libretto because everything watt does turns into an opera at some point but it's uh it's this writing by um it's a writing about Chernobyl, the the Chernobyl uh, nuclear meltdown, 
by poet Charles Plyman, Plymel, rather, Plymel. And um, Watt then recorded a bunch of bass parts inspired by this poem, and then he gave it to singer and violinist Petra Hayden, who then added music, added violin parts and layered lots and lots of vocals and used the um, the the poem as the inspiration for the lyrics. And so I know that nobody here is like, you know what really cheer me up? A an opera about Chernobyl. I, you know, I understand that just hearing this, there's a certain barrier to entry, especially when I tell you the only noises on it are voice, violin, and uh I think there's a mandolin maybe on there too, and then bass. So it's just it's a it's a very unusual record. But Petra Hayden is my favorite singer alive, I believe, and her voice is just a miracle, just a miraculous, miraculous thing. And she layers it with such beauty. And she and Watt have this really interesting collaboration together. Because if you listen to their music, they do separately. You wouldn't necessarily think that they'd be uh, this effective bedfellows musically. But they just, they really complement each other well. Watt's bass playing on this is unlike anything. Like when people think of Mike Watt, they think of the Minutemen and Firehose and uh, playing with the Stooges and, you know, all that. This is absolutely diametrically opposed to that. It's very melodic. It's very restrained. And then the other, what Hayden is adding to it, both instrumentally and vocally, is just so beautiful. And while tackling this very, very serious subject and this very sad subject, the record manages to kind of feel hopeful at times. I don't really know how they pull that off, but it sort of does. Maybe it's just because I am somebody who always pays more attention to the music than the lyrics themselves. So maybe I'm just good enough at tr- drowning out the horribly sad lyrics that it's not uh, bringing me that down too much. But uh, this is one of my favorite records of the year uh, thus far, and it's it's surprising at every turn. It's beautiful. It's haunting. Um, yeah. If any of that sounds interesting to you, I would take the time to check it out, but I totally understand if this sounds like a, an easy avoidance from our listeners. I, I, w- I will not take it personally if that's the case. Um, but yeah, uh, Planet Chernobyl by Pelican Man, a.k.a. Mike Watt and Petra Hayden is my pick for the week. Uh, I also just read, Chris, and I, I know both of us have seen Watt relatively recently, but in the Porno for Pyro's uh, press release about him playing bass, they're basically saying he will no longer be able to stand during performances because of how bad his knees are. Mm. And that that just makes me sad. Uh, yeah. When when I last saw him at Solid Sound last summer, I had noted to you I, I hadn't seen him in a few years and how he he really looked like he was having a hard time walking. Yeah, yeah, no, and that that goes back quite a ways. Um, mm-hmm. I remember at All Tomorrow's parties uh, in Monticello back in 2010. I think he had had an either I don't know if it was an injury or a surgery, uh, but he was walking, but he he had sort of a brace on his leg and um i think some sort of cane so he, he was he was pretty mobile and he he recovered from that eventually you know, uh-huh. he played a bunch of his solo shows doing what he always does um but it was it was pretty badass at the time because he's he's not that old but he, he was no, not exactly a young man at the time right right yeah and he was playing the raw power uh, they didn't play the album start to finish sequentially but they played all of raw power and then a bunch of other stooges stuff and that that, that's a heavy set yeah yeah (laughs) and and he 
he was standing for that. Um, you know, he's a, he's a pretty animated guy up there. So, um, certainly you're still lucky if you get to hear him play bass, no matter what he needs to do to accommodate. Absolutely. Yeah. That condition. But yeah, that, that it, it is a little sad. Yeah. Cause Hope- he just, yeah. Uh, ho- hopefully he, he can get either get better or can just make this work for him. You know, whatever works for Watt works for me. He's 65. He's still an incredible bass player. And he's still the uh, the like the moral code of the of the music industry. So whatever Watt needs to do, Watt should do. Anyway, that does it for us. Uh, thank you for listening to us do what we do. Go to uh, homerunapplesauce.com or patreon.com slash homerunapplesauce for more information about the show. Uh, I guess we're both technically on social media. Kind of, sort of. Chris is at Chris Machine. I'm at Brian is an app. And uh, until next time, let's go Mets.